beautiful Crimean seaside town of Yalta was the setting for the latest and greatest conference of the Big Three. One of the first to be greeted at the Yalta airfield by the Foreign Commissar, Mr. Molotov, was Field Marshal Alexander. Mr. Churchill arrives direct from Malta. Kremlin guards form a guard of honor and march past in full Red Army style after being inspected by Mr. Churchill and President Roosevelt. The meetings were to be held in the beautiful Livadia Palace, once the home of a Russian prince. The former state banqueting hall is now the conference room. American Secretary of State, Satinius, the American ambassador, April Harriman, arrived with their British equivalents, Mr. Eden and Sir Archibald Clark Carr. Mr. Churchill makes his appearance for the first of the meetings, suitably addressed for the occasion. Finally, into the palace courtyard sweeps the long black car bearing one of the greatest military leaders of all time, Marshal of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin. Representatives of the three powers take their places for the beginning of the Crimean Conference. Maisky, Deputy Foreign Commissar and one-time Ambassador to Britain, has a few words to say to his chief. For eight days, these pleasant surroundings saw the formation of one great plan after another concerning the end of ourselves. In between the long hours of discussion, the three leaders had many lighter moments. On this occasion, the subject appears to be the Prime Minister's hat. The Crimean Conference has resulted in many great decisions for the future. But we may be sure that the first and greatest aim of the Allied leaders is a speedy and decisive end to this war and a guarantee that German military power will never rise again.
All right, I am now joined uh, by uh, Jean Bajalan, our friend and comrade who uh, needs no introduction here. He's uh, like the, um, I remember the, I don't even remember who the guest was in the gag on The Simpsons, uh, the person on Kent Brockman who says she brought her own mic. Uh, but um, Cuba Orinsky, uh, uh, is, uh, has been on the panel before, but it has been a while. Uh, Kuba, you want to uh, refresh uh, the good people a little bit about who you are? So um, I'm, I was brought into this mess by uh, Gene a long time ago when um, he, uh, Ben, and Dan Bessner, and I discussed the possibility of a social democratic foreign policy back when a social democratic foreign policy was something possible. And since then, I've uh, been appearing regularly on This Is Revolution with Jason Miles and Pascal Robert. Um, I have a couple of clips up on Zero Books explaining uh, the finer points of the uh, Russian Revolution and that time period. But professionally, I remain a small cog in the globalist um, apparatus. Uh, I work as a development and um, economic analytics consultants, um, having previously worked for the Pentagon doing uh, defense analysis and other types of political economic thought work. So I'm one of the weird deep state socialists that's uh, trusted neither by the deep state nor the socialists. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so uh, what what I want to talk about today uh, is uh, two of the guys in uh, in that clip, um, primarily uh, the uh, the Russian one, but uh, but also the American, uh, because at least on the left, the one problem that we don't have is uh, idolizing or romanticizing Winston Churchill. Now, the left is the only place where that's not a problem. Everywhere else. Uh, the rest of the spectrum is Churchill romanticization from wall to wall, uh, but leftists by and large understand that uh, Churchill uh, was a racist and a defender of empire and a committer of various war crimes uh, and, and a social reactionary and an enemy of the uh, British working class. Uh, and... Um, and you know, despite you know the role that he played in the war to defeat fascism, have have correctly uh, very little time for him. Uh, but the uh, the other two, uh, it's a uh, it's a different story. So uh, the you know kind of excesses of New Deal fetishism is something we'll probably talk about a little bit uh, towards the uh, the end. Uh, the way that that can distort uh, some of our perspective, but uh, the. Uh, the Stalin uh, stuff is um, is the uh, uh, is very weirdly somehow become kind of a hot topic lately. Like it's 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 very um, like in the context of the United States in the 21st century, this would be a little bit like if everybody on the online left just sort of sort of started uh, randomly um, you know randomly arguing about, I don't know, uh, Caligula or uh, the... Robespierre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, you know, was Robespierre correct to guillotine the Girondins or, you know, were the, uh, were the yes. charges uh, trumped up? Uh, 
fair enough. Uh, but uh, one difference I'd suggest, by the way, is that Robespierre was actually a leader of a revolution, uh, whereas Stalin had very little to do with it, killed pretty much everybody who actually did uh, bring about the revolution uh, and, and hijacked it and proceeded to sabotage other revolutions all around the world. Uh, but um, so, you know, Robespierre, despite the fact that, you know, to do the Stalinist thing, you know, mistakes were made, uh, you know, was a uh, was somebody who at least actually had a better role. He in came by life. it honestly. Yes, exactly. Uh, but uh, but there there is this uh, there is this strange thing where at least in, you know, not not the not so much the left in the sense of like people who work for the nurses union and spend all their time organizing for uh, Medicare for all. I think if you ask one of those people what they thought about Stalin, they'd, they'd give you a very strange look. Uh, but uh, certainly the online left, the media left, uh, there has been this, this strange uh, thing where, um, where you, there have been uh, defenses of uh, of Stalin and and uh, and in, and like anger uh, if if you if you point out that this that the defense is both um, wildly historically inaccurate on on every conceivable point and also just really politically perverse right I mean that that if if you have a um, you know you live in a time when you know there are starting to be some openings for some kind of critique of capitalism, even if a lot of people are very confused about what that means, uh, where, where you know, you can have people who, even if they are sort of uh, muddled social democrats in some ways, call themselves socialists and, and, and can actually uh, achieve things in, in real world politics, uh, to, to sort of turn around and, and embrace uh, the thing that throughout the, uh, throughout the 20th century, right, the most effective kind of anti-communist propaganda you could ever have is wow okay so so what you want is like what they had in stalin's russia uh and of course that's lost a lot of its power over the course of the last several decades since i mean you know we've, we've been uh at this point like you know we've we're like 70 years almost from the soviet union first starting to liberalize and uh and uh, 30 years uh, from the uh, the Soviet Union uh, breaking now uh, breaking up, but uh, but there are some people on uh, you know on the online left and in the media sphere who uh, who have uh, who are sort of oddly eager uh, to uh, to to rehabilitate this guy. So um, you know, for example, for example, uh, there is a uh, there's somebody uh, named uh, Asatar Bear. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, who uh, who says this is the quote? Uh, parts of this might be joking. I'm a little unclear about it. Uh, who says people say I idolize Stalin? Not true. Uh, I hold a fair and balanced view. The man was neither savior nor saint, but he was at once a very successful revolutionary, a great contributor to Marxist theory, and said to be a great listener and collaborator during discussions. Uh, a thoughtful and considerate lover. He would help you move your couch. Uh, so then uh, there are his successes as a leader. Uh, first, uh, the foresight to fear a belligerent German fascism. Then the tactical ability to successfully defeat the world's greatest invading army, combined with the strength to make tough decisions that had no easy answers. I simply think that one should read everything the man wrote and then make up your own mind. I would certainly conclude that he's one of the great leaders of the 20th century, though. So I will... Um, 
put my own cards on the table and uh, and say that uh, I I find this to be not only again in I I guess I'm not sure what he whether he was a good listener, but in in every other respect I think uh, fairly inaccurate, uh, you know, and and also just just kind of weirdly unhelpful. I mean, I think the kind of thing that you say if if you're you know, I mean, I've I've heard that he does good work as 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 a uh, as an economist. I know people who like him and have good things to say about him, but um, you know, I, I think that at the very least, let's say the uh, the rabid defense that this kind of thing gets when it comes up uh, might be a sign that some people like having the socialist left be a marginal subculture. It's it's like uh, you know when your favorite band gets too popular. And and you you don't you don't like it and you have to differentiate yourself somehow, and I, I think defending this kind of statement is a pretty extreme example of that. But I wanted to go to you guys, so uh, let's uh, let's let's start out at the um, uh, let's actually start in the middle uh, the uh, uh, the foresight to fear a belligerent German fascism. Uh, what do we think about this? Well, I want to start by saying, you know, we know Astad Ba from, uh, you know, uh, this is revolution. He's a great friend of the show. You know, he's a like a, a respectable econo Marxist economist. Studied under Richard Wolff. Studied with, peop uh, you know, alongside people like Zach Exley. So, you know, this uh, I, I see this conversation as being a friendly conversation, and you know, not one where we're going to sort of engage in kind of like hysterical. Uh, like yelling about like, uh, you know, you're a bad guy and things like that. And certainly not the kind of like red baiting that has been directed towards Astaba, you know, like you've had certain right wing, uh, uh, you know, uh, outlets pick up on, on, on his statements, which I, I, I disagree with. But, you know, uh, you know, this is not, you know, a personal thing. But I do think definitely uh, this is a, dis a topic worth discussing in a kind of like friendly uh, fashion, not in an accusatory way. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of like what I uh, want to get, a, uh, you know, sort of have a little preamble to this discussion, because I think it's really important that we can deal with these kind of issues in a kind of civilized way without, you know, necessarily everything having to be uh, condemning people or inverted comment, canceling people from the left. Uh, that being said, you know, I'll let Kuba speak first and then perhaps come back to me. Well, I'm I can find at least one part of that statement, which I can wholeheartedly endorse, which is that Stalin was one of the greatest leaders of the 20th century in terms of how consequential his decisions were, how significant a role he played in shaping historical development in uh, his charisma, his uh, presence, right? His hold over the Soviet Union, his influence. Now, that greatness is only a measure of effect, of impact. We have to dig deeper to look at, well, what did these great things that he did, what, what did his great accomplishments amount to? What did they cost? Were there alternatives? Were there um, more humane options available? And who paid the price? for Stalin's greatness. And I think that once you get past that very simple um, observation that this was an incredibly consequential historical figure, I mean, he was uh, Times Man of the Year twice, 
right? Um, then the evaluation about um, what it is that he actually did gets um, gets pretty bleak, and it gets bleak in a tragical historical way. So, for instance, he the Soviet Union, Stalin Soviet Union, was essential to defeating the Third Reich, without a without question, and they're the ones who did it. And yeah, nine yeah. out of every ten. Um, yeah, uh, and, yeah. I was mm -hmm. going to say it. I make a distinction here, right, between the thing that's absolutely true, uh, which is that the Soviet Union did most of the lifting and in, in heavy lifting and defeating Hitler. Uh, no doubt whatsoever about that. I mean, we did a segment a couple of weeks ago with with Ryan Grimm about his his comment about that. That is absolutely true. The Red uh, Army well, ends the Holocaust. Yeah, Red Army did end the Holocaust. Uh, but uh, if if we're talking about Stalin as opposed to the Soviet Army as a whole, then you know we want to make some uh, distinctions here, right? So said the foresight to fear a belligerent German fascism and the tactical ability to successfully defeat the world's greatest uh, invading army. And so one question I'd, I'd raise is, was fascism defeated uh, because of Stalin or was fascism defeated in spite of Stalin? Uh, so, so certainly... I think, mm -hmm. I think that's a very fair question. Um, and there's, I'd suggest that there's um, arguments on both sides of the ledger. For instance, Stalin's purge of the Red Army in immediately before Operation Barbarossa played into uh, the plans of German intelligence and wiped out essential cadres, uh, significantly setting the war effort back. Similarly, um, he misread the uh, intentions of uh, the Third Reich and couldn't imagine a uh, late offensive, which ended up with the annihilation of the frontline forces during the initial stages of uh, Barbarossa. He completely misread it. The um, Soviet doctrine was outdated. Um, military doctrine and technology were both outdated when facing the, the Blitzkrieg. And um, generals under Stalin were the ones responsible for updating it. Uh, people like uh, Zhukov, um, Konev, others um, were essential in actually having the tactical, you know, the, the tactical uh, brilliance or the tactical acumen. I, I don't know what Dr. Baer, um, the, the word he uses, I forget. But that does not belong to Stalin. That belongs to the leadership beneath him, many of whom he had thrown into camps before the war. And, yeah, and, we, and we could start even earlier than this, um, if you wanted to, to pick up on this, Gene, you know, with, uh, with uh, the rise of the Nazis to power in the first place. I mean, this is this is a big issue in the the cleavage between uh, Stalinism and the um, uh, you know dissenting Trotsky's faction in the international uh, communist movement uh, because um, you know Trotsky uh, believed that the uh, that what should have happened was that there should have been some sort of united front between German communists and German social democrats in order to stop Hitler from rising to power, but that's not at all uh, what, what under Stalin's direction that the Comintern, the international communist movement actually did at the time. Yeah, I think I think it's important to recognize like the doctrine of like social fascism that is like, you know, turning turning the communist movement's fire on reformists at a time where fascism uh, was on the rise was a miscalculation of where the main enemy to the uh, communist movement was at the time. 
So you know the the Bolshe, uh, the the common term which had been you know effectively Stalinized during the 19 and you know it's not all down to uh, Stalin himself but uh, the common term. Uh, adopted a series of disastrous policies in in, in Germany, which uh, you know there was a vacillation uh, and a shift towards a popular front uh, strategy, but far too late uh, uh, to sort of resist the rise of uh, uh, Nazism. Uh, and then you know if you turn to the east, you actually see these uh, you know very early on in the 1920s, uh, Stalin and Zion, uh, uh, um, Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, yeah, start, you know, in the early 1920s, the, the, under the direction uh, of uh, uh, the pro-Stalin faction, the, the, the doctrine uh, was actually a move away from Leninism, in a sense, towards uh, encouraging the uh, um, Chinese Communist Party to join a united front with the uh, Guomintang, which proved to be extremely disastrous for the Communist Party, ended up in, in, in you know, in the nationalist liquidating them. So there were, you know, blunders from very early on. Now, you know, yeah. So, 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 so just, just to be, yeah, just ahead. to be clear, so everybody knows what you're talking about with the social fascism line. So, uh, so you know, the common turn was the worldwide association of communist parties, uh, and uh, the common turn line. Uh, during the you know beginning of the 1930s, uh, was what was uh, during what was called the third period, uh, was that um, the Social Democrats, you know, the more moderate German Socialist Party, uh, and its equivalents in other countries, were actually the main threat. That the uh, that the main danger wasn't the Nazis and Hitler. It was uh, it was the Social Democrats because they were they were really social fascists. In other words, they seemed to be socialists, uh, but they were really fascists. So you absolutely couldn't work with them to stop the actual literal fascists uh, who were going around feeding you know, social democratic and communist militias in the street and and beating up and killing you know uh, workers organizers and uh, and and smashing up any kind of you know independent working class organization uh, because the the main threat uh, was the social democrats and in their, you know particularly. Uh, a notorious slogan, you know, said, okay, maybe the, the Nazis will come to power, but, you know, not Hitler uns, you know, after, after Hitler us, you know, that it'll, it'll, uh, it'll ultimately lead to revolution in any case. And I think that this, and the, and uh, the communist, dis sorry, uh, Kubo, but I would just know, you know, the communist distrust of the social Democrats was not, of, of course, entirely uh, no. irrational, but, you know, there was definitely a, a, a strategic mistake uh, on, on a strategic level for misidentifying uh, what the main threat was. The Social Democrats may well have been problematic for the Socialists, but the Nazis were uh, even more uh, uh, problematic in that sense. So the, 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 the reduction of uh, the Comintern to an instrument of uh, Stalinist foreign policy was deeply problematic and had like, uh, and uh, you know, there was miscalculations in Germany, miscalculations in the Spanish Civil War, uh, you know, uh, and and a lot of the political agenda was uh, um, shaped by, you know, on the more rational level, kind of Soviet great power foreign policy interests as a territorial state, and also the factional paranoia that emerged uh, during the 1920s pertaining to Trotskyism and the the. The, the the view that there were uh, you know conspiracy Trotsky Trotskyist uh, conspiracies uh, I, everywhere. Yeah, I want to I want to pick up on that because I think that the 
one place where, and, and I noticed in the chat, uh, somebody commented, achievements of the um, USSR equals despite Stalin, problems with the Soviet uh, Union equals Stalin's fault. And there are certain characteristics and traits of the Soviet Union that um, were not, you can't really blame Stalin for. But there are a few places where he had agency and decisive agency. And one of them was the turn towards the concept of socialism in one country. That's one of his coinages. And this had very severe implications down the line. Um, first of all, it legitimated subordinating international um, solidarity and revolutionary movements abroad to the great power interests of the Soviet Union as a state. And I think that one reason why um, you had a common turn uh, that favored um, Hitler over a communist socialist um, United Front is because if the United Front worked, that would actually represent a um, independent, non-Moscow-centered power center in Europe, which would compete with the Soviet Union. The um, well, and not just compete geopolitically, but also as an ideological alternative. And the socialism in one country turn also involved the abandonment of the highly popular and very successful new economic program, which was probably one of the strongest um, economic policies ever in terms of general welfare among the Russian population, incredibly popular with the peasantry, uh, led to a renaissance in uh, the Russian urban centers as well. Uh, and not only that, but it achieved all of this under a climate of relative uh, individual liberty. Um, and instead, he replaced that with the five-year plans, which were brutally coercive and extraordinarily harsh on essentially the entire mass of Soviet society, workers, peasants, um, with terror imposed on a national level and on a million person scale in order to maintain the discipline that allowed for that rapid industrialization, which was extractive. You extracted from uh, especially Ukrainian agriculture in order to produce export uh, surpluses and you extracted from um, unfree labor in the form not just of um, the gulag and penal colonies, but also the entire Soviet working class was essentially unfree labor um, allocated by plan into these extremely challenging uh, conditions with very demanding quotas for production and severe discipline if you fail to meet those quotas. Yeah, I mean, now, and, and, and also internal passports, uh, you know, like, like making it essentially illegal uh, to to quit your job or or even at the the height of it, you know, to uh, to be absent from your job for too many days or you know late. That's absolutely for right. Days. Uh, although um, one thing that I would hasten to point out is the net was the real aberration, and Stalinist controls things like the internal passport, things like blanket bans on foreign travel, uh, surveillance and um, control over foreigners entering the Soviet Union, limitations on communications, omnipresent propaganda. These are extensions of czarist 
um, elements of statecraft. And they were adapted and modernized, um, made more rational, made harsher, made harder to escape. But in a lot of ways, um, Stalinism was less revolutionary than the previous period that preceded it in terms of breaking with um, feudal absolutist uh, modes of control. Instead, he brought them in, but with a industrialization and great power justification. Yeah, and, and I, I should say uh, that it's interesting, I've seen Zizek point this out, that if you look at the uh, the rhetoric and propaganda of contemporary, you know, Putinism, you know, which 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 is, of course, you know, a, uh, you know, uh, Russia today is unambiguously capitalist and uh, and and you know uh, run by by a tiny handful of, of oligarchs uh, and who've in a lot of ways reverted to uh, you know even on the level of of, of rhetoric uh, you know older forms of uh, hegemony but um, but kind of like Stalin like you know they they in the same way that they kind of like you know, some of the great czars, uh, because they, they sort of assimilate him to that history, that he was one of the great Russian leaders, you know, like like one of these really strong czars. Like uh, whereas Ivan the Lenin, or Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan, even Ivan the Lesser. The Peter the Great. But I think, I think yeah. it's, import, it's important. Well, well, to, I was, 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 was going to say, whereas Lenin, they don't like at all, because if you bring up Lenin, that sort of reminds people that revolutions are possible, which is obviously the last thing they want to remind anybody of. Uh, before you make your point, Gene, uh, Alan Kennedy, thank you for the super chat. State uh, funeral, I'm not familiar with that. Nope. Do you, okay. Does he mean Stalin state funeral? Uh, it looks like it's capital S, capital F. That makes it sound like it's the name of a movie, but uh, I'm, I'm not too, I'm not too sure about this. Yes, uh, it is a movie. Um, it's a movie about Stalin's state funeral. Um, it came out um, very recently. Okay. Uh, and uh, friend Derek Varn says part of the issue here is that Bonapartism is useful as a distraction, understanding history. It's encouraged by contemporary political powers uh, for this. Uh, I, you know, I think there are a couple things that Varn might mean by Bonapartism in this context. Uh, um, if he leaves another, I mean, it could just be a regular chat, you know, and below another comment to, to clarify this. Maybe we could uh, say more about that, uh, whether whether he means like he's talking very specifically about like what Marxists have historically meant by Bonapartism and analysis of Stalin is like fitting into that mold, or this is just kind of in the grand theory of history or something like that. But what were you going to say, Jim? Yeah, I was going to say, like, of course, I think an important sort of addendum to put in here, this is, you know, talking about the 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 coercive nature of uh, Soviet industrialization, obviously, has to be looked at in a global context, because, of course, uh, you know, what uh, liberal and conservative historians will do is compare, you know, Soviet industrialization unfavorably with the processes that took place in Western Europe during the 19th uh, century, but of course, uh, you know the process of industrialization, the 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 expansion of colonial uh, uh, administrations around the world, the opening up of markets. That of course too was an extremely brutal process. The early phase of the industrial revolution in Britain was, you know, it, it uh, was extremely painful, brutal, and violent as well. So, you know, in talking uh, about Soviet industrialization. Uh, we're talking, you know, industrialization in and of itself is a very painful process. We've seen it historically as a painful process. So 
in critiquing Soviet in industrialization, this is not to sort of, on the flip side, uh, paint a rosy picture of, of the process of industrialization in, in the West, and particularly how that affected the working classes in countries like Great Britain, France, uh, the United Kingdom, as well as the colonial dependencies that that were brought into the imperial system. So, you know, I just want to make that clear that this is, you know, in critiquing this process of industrialization, it's not a uh, a backdoor defense of of Western industrialization. No, I mean that's that should I I I hope go without saying. Uh, you know, I mean I I think like, yeah, of course. I mean as like like Marx says in, in the first volume of Capital, right? Uh, you know that the capitalism comes into the world. You know. Um, uh, dripping with with uh, with blood and dirt, you know, from from every pore. You know that the uh, the process of industrialization in Britain could only happen uh, through uh, this absolutely brutal process of uh, of kicking uh, peasants uh, off of uh, off of their land, so people would be desperate enough uh, to go work in uh, these god awful early factories uh, in Blake you know, called dark satanic mills, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, you'd, you'd work for like 16 hours a day in incredibly dark and dangerous and, you know, noisy conditions, uh, which you, you had to be, you know, in Mark's phrase, doubly uh, free to do that, right? Free in the sense that you weren't tied to the land in a feudal way. So you were, you know, you had freedom of contract, uh, but also free in the sense that you were free from any other way of supporting yourself uh, besides uh, agreeing to that. And in a lot of ways, what happened in the Soviet Union, as, as Kuba puts it, under the guise of uh, socialism in one country was a really um, intense version of that within just a few years. Exactly. Extremely and, compressed version of that contract without the double freedom. But yeah, you were, you were saying. And I think that, um, I think that the proper way of thinking about industrialization is as a brutally challenging and extremely onerous process in which you're going to pay a price in countless human lives and no one has done it painlessly the west in original industrialization it was paid for by colonialism by exploitation by um you know land theft by um you know, brutal brutal working conditions and killed millions of people the soviet version compressed under stalin um in a shorter time uh, frame part and that may have been necessary. That may have been the only way to do it because of the uh, security threats that the Soviet Union faced. Right? It's an open question of whether Third Reich would have been defeated by a less, uh, less industrialized Soviet Union. I think. The, uh, so, I think. Sorry. I think that the. I think that the proper framing um, around the industrialization policy um, and the five-year plans is not. Um, what you know wouldn't it have been nice if we didn't have to do all these things so much as how does it compare to other processes of industrialization both in terms of costs and in terms of outcomes and it seems to me that if you look comparatively at uh, industrialization on a global scale the most successful models are china and japan and they involve a semi-porous relationship with the international capitalist economy, which um, doesn't necessarily blunt the exploitation um, and the uh, brutalization of the working class domestically, but it allows for 
the uptake of capital, the uptake of investment, and the uptake especially of intellectual property and technology at a rapidly, uh, at a much more rapid pace than if you were trying to do it indigenously um, or you cut yourself off from the international economy like the Soviet Union. Was that available to the Soviet Union at the time? Probably not. Um, and the a great deal hinges on whether or not the industrialization is um, you know necessary in some way. If it is, then Stalin is the kind of the, the only one who had the spirit hard enough to pay that terrible price to do the thing which saved us all from a thousand year Reich. If any alternative was possible, then yeah. you know you I mean, should have I mean, done I, that I instead. Mean, it's, the, it's the problem with the counterfactual, right? Obviously, mm -hmm. that's the, the major problem with history is, of course, we can't run experimentation. So ultimately, you know, we can never come to a final conclusion. And of course, even if, let's say, you had a new economic policy, which was a less coercive uh, method of industrialization, but slower, you know, the argument would be then would uh, Russia have had the industrial base to maintain itself against the Nazi uh, invasion. But at the same time, with a, 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 an alternative political leadership in the Soviet Union, would the Soviet Union have made the same blunders in, uh, in foreign policy, which uh, helped precipitate the rise of, uh, of Nazi Germany? and also the rearmament of, uh, of the Ger uh, German state. It's important to remember, up until 1933, uh, up until Hitler's rise to power, uh, the, the Soviet Union and Weimar Germany had a secret military uh, alliance. Many, uh, many, uh, the, the, the kind of armored doctrines that, would that the Germans used so successfully during the war were developed in cooperation uh, with the Soviet Union, and it was ultimately the Germans who terminated that military cooperation in nineteen. Yeah, this this is this is a really a really a really crucial point, right? Because because uh, going back to uh, the original claim, uh, said the uh, the foresight to fear a belligerent German fascism strikes me as wrong on just about every possible level. That while Hitler was coming to power, uh, there was no foresight displayed there whatsoever. The line that was imposed on the German communist movement was a catastrophe. We don't know whether the Trotsky strategy United Front would have worked or not, but we know that saying that the social Democrats uh, were a bigger threat uh, than, than the Nazis was, was lunacy. Uh, and, and by the way, it's very funny because the, uh, this, the official state party of, of East Germany um, was called the Socialist uh, Unification Party because uh, it was formally... Uh, the, you know, I mean, not that that's very meaningful under the circumstances, but it was formally the merger of the German communists and uh, the East German part of the uh, of the German Social Democratic Party, which, I mean, is obviously a legal fiction, but it's something they had to do because the German Social Democratic Party still had such deep roots uh, in the German working class. It's something they felt the need to do for the regime to have any legitimacy, but uh, disastrous lack of sight there. Uh, then uh, there's the pivot from the third period to uh, the um, to the Popular Front, which is good in some ways. It does at least involve you know fighting fascism. Uh, disastrous in other ways. I mean, if you look at especially what happened in Spain, where Stalin essentially exported the KGB and the Spanish Republic in ways that probably badly undermined the war effort. Uh, and then uh, and then actually, let's not forget. Uh, 
especially if somebody's going to make the entire their entire defense Stalin revolve around World War II, it's just bizarre to leave out the fact that, as Jane said, uh, Stalin was allied to Hitler for uh, for two crucial years uh, before uh, before the uh, the invasion of the uh, of the Soviet Union, and uh, and during that time, he was 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 purging. Uh, good generals, uh, in fact, was continuing to do that as the Nazi tanks started to roll, ended up having to scour the gulag for competent military officers. This uh, is a really critical point. You know, the Germans benefited from the joint training uh, that was undergone uh, up until 1933 in, arm, you know, in armored warfare. Uh, and, you know, Tukhachevsky was like a critical figure in the, in the development of this doctrine. But the entire cadre that had been trained in this model of warfare was annihilated. And secondly, we, you know, the success of Nazi Germany as this unstoppable war machine is actually a lie. And the re reason I would say it's a lie uh, is because, you know, even in 1941, Soviet uh, military hardware, such as the, you know, T-34, uh, I think, was superior to German military uh, military hardware. It was the annihilation of the, the cadre uh, you know, this, if you want to, you know, if you ask me, the strongest defense of Stalin, I think, is the idea that however me brutal that industrialization was, it was a necessary precursor to provide the industrial basis that you needed to over uh, overthrow uh, Nazi Germany. But the 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 the, the, the tactical. The, the tactical problems and sort of lack of strategic thinking, uh, both leading up to the war in engaging in pointless. Uh, 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 wars against Finland, uh, alienating places like Romania, uh, in, uh, uh, and invading Poland. These were all uh, big mistakes that lead up to the war. And when German, you know, when Germany attacked, Stalin, you know, Stalin basically went off to his dacha because they thought they were going to put a bullet in his head because, you know, the the invasion took place and there was not a proper mobilization response. So the the best equipment of the Soviet army, which was superior in many ways to German equipment, uh, was was just lost. So, you know, uh, you can make an argument that uh, there was enormous cost to the mismanagement of the Red Army in the lead up to the war. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the most significant generals was uh, uh, Rokokovsky, Konstantin uh, uh, the guy was like sent to a gulag and, and him along with one fifth of the officer corps that had been sent to gulags had to be you know uh sent back to the front because they didn't have uh, uh the the um you know the, the cadre so these purges were clearly not necessarily all to do with like undermining these like secret cabals of saboteurs but a political decision because if these guys were all really counter-revolutionaries how could you get one fifth of them back to staff your army and I think that um, Gene also touched on a very important point, which is the um, the treatment of uh, Soviet foreign policy in terms of occupied territories and its neighbors. The we a lot of the beginning of this conversation made it sound as though the Nazi-Soviet border um, was contiguous as ever, you know, from the very beginning. But there were there was a constellation of independent countries: Poland, the Baltic states, um, Finland, Romania, Czechoslovakia, that, um, like a united front, uh, domestically in Germany, could have fought. You know, Stalin could have used a common turn, or a leader other than Stalin could have engaged in some good boy diplomacy, and um, 
created a anti-fascist counterweight um, with all of these states that were deathly afraid of the Third Reich, that were um, legitimately and seriously mobilized to uh, try to protect their own independence against uh, German ambitions. But no, he led them to the slaughter. Uh, instead, he signed Molotov-Ribbentrop. And in the places where the uh, Red Army was ceded the territory, the Baltic states, and, and you know, I particularly know the case of Eastern Poland, the people, ethnic Poles, right? The, the joke was that uh, a boatload of refugees is fleeing from Warsaw East to try to get away from the Third Reich. They, um, they're crossing a river when another boat comes towards them and they call, turn back, turn back. It's like, why? The, the Germans, the Nazis are behind us. We have, to, we have to flee. It's like, no, you don't understand. The Soviets are coming. The Soviets are behind us. And the two boats meet. The Jews get in the eastward bound boat because they preferred their chances with uh, Stalin while the Poles get into the westbound boat because they preferred their chances with Hitler. And this is not a comment on Polish anti-Semitism. Uh, Stalin purged, uh, he rounded up and executed tens of thousands of Polish intellectuals, academics, uh, military officers that had um, never fought against the Soviet Union, that had no anti-Soviet affiliations, but the purpose of um, terror in these occupied territories, Soviet terror, as much as Nazi terror, was to break the nationalist spirit of independence, right? The Polish Communist Party was also purged under Stalin's orders. The uh, Communist parties all across Eastern Europe, as a matter of fact. The, um, and that leads to uh, the export of the most repressive elements of the Soviet model into Central Europe, where uh, they were not needed to industrialize. They had kind of no real um, necessity anymore. Indeed, the collective farms were um, had outlived their usefulness even in the Soviet Union, but remained vital as mechanisms of control, as systems of coercion over the rural population. Um, Poland, was spared collectivization because Soviet economists and Poland specialists correctly reckoned that if you collectivize Polish agriculture, the collapse in yields will be so severe that the entire Eastern Bloc will starve. And if you piss off the Polish peasantry, the largest single social group in the country, and the only ones who might tolerate uh, communist government so long as their land is left intact, if you take it from them, then you're just going to have a a 100% national revolution in uh, the Polish territories. The, these are other moves of Stalinism, which bring enormous human suffering in their wake with very little to show for it. The insane war against Finland being another example where the Soviets didn't even get to win. Yeah. Uh, and um, by the way, Gene, if you want to comment on the super chat, I think that one's all you. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it's uh, video games. Although I think video games uh, build on a long tradition. Especially in Western cinema, it's the same. You know, there is this desire to paint the Wehrmacht as this superior military force, and certainly, uh, you know, they had their strengths and advantages. But you know, it obfuscates the 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 real issue, which was the bungling of of uh, France and Britain in the early stages uh, of the war. You know, there's a huge mythology in the United Kingdom about Britain standing alone. Well, Britain didn't stand alone because it had a huge colonial empire. 
uh, from which to draw resources and was willing to starve two million Bengalis to death in order to, you know, in order to feed its military forces. So, you know, it, it, it's often been, um, it's oft, I, th I think often the military superiority of the Germans, uh, both in technical and tactical terms, has at times been greatly exaggerated to kind of, uh, you know, uh, which 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 goes which goes to the point about about yes. uh, whether the the Soviets won the war you know because of or, or despite of uh, Stalin because uh, you can make a case as Kuba said earlier uh, for for because of uh, purely in terms of industrialization uh, which by the way I saw somebody in the chat say something about oh Japan you know, didn't have 14 countries invading it while it's trying to industrialize. I think the commenter is getting a couple of historical periods mixed up. The 14 countries refers to the Russian Civil War, which is many, many years before there's any attempt to industrialize. Uh, the, uh, the industrialization happens uh, during uh, the, um, you know, 17 years or so of relative peace, uh, you know, in between the, the Civil War dying down and, and the beginnings of what would become World War II. Uh, and and even lots of, of commercial openings to you know Western countries and so on, uh, but um, but the industrialization you can make a case because you can say well maybe they wouldn't have been able to uh, to win the war if you know I mean granted a lot of it was um, you know Russian bodies in in, uh, in in tanks made in Detroit but you know a lot of the tanks were made in the Soviet Union and so without the industrialization maybe that wouldn't have you know maybe that wouldn't have been enough. Uh, which, by the way, I also think is funny because that's going to be the big defense of Stalin because people who defend Stalin invariably uh, you know, go on and on and on about how much they love Lenin and they're Leninists. But, of course, industrialization was a sharp, sharp turn away from what Lenin wanted. Uh, you know, Lenin was very explicit that he thought that there would be several decades of the new economic policy. Uh, his, uh, his last writings, like on cooperatives, uh, Lenin's plan for collectivizing agriculture was uh, long-term policies like tax incentives to uh, favor rural cooperatives. Uh, go, go look it up. That's what he wrote on cooperatives. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, you can. I guess you can give Stalin credit for for uh, sharply leaving. You know, going in 180 degrees opposite from from what Lenin wanted because it later helped with the war. But if you're talking about the years immediately leading up to the war and and then the actual conduct of the war, then it just seems overwhelmingly clear to me that the answer is despite, uh, not because of, because of the third period policies we talked about, uh, because of uh, the uh, the alliance with uh, with with Hitler uh, that that in many ways helped you know help the Nazis be as successful as they were later during the war uh, because of the reluctance to believe that alliance had been broken because of uh, of the severe purges of the military I mean yeah and and I think this goes to why it's important to discount the kind of myths of not of Nazi military invincibility I mean that that you know I mean like Hitler was also a megalomaniac who uh, who, who did lots of things, lots and lots of things that undermined his country's, uh, you know, military uh, success, um, you know, from... You know, including the Holocaust. Including the Holocaust, right, which diverted tons of resources from the uh, from the war effort. And We're making patriotic movies by deploying, uh, deploying soldiers from the Russian front to movie studios. Yeah, I mean, like... I think I think this is this is a we have to have a, like a sober understanding of this. You know, 
and there, I mean, there, there, it was it was a yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't an unstoppable military force. It was a powerful military that was also hobbled by its own incompetent leadership. Uh, and yes, throw in you know you could throw enough millions and millions and millions of people at it, it would eventually be defeated. But uh, what are you there, there is um there is one thing that I'd like to tease out there about the um the kind of the the tactical blunders of either dictator and and how they shaped the strategic conditions that the war was fought under um and one thing that i don't think we've brought up enough about the um about stalinism is the um the outside of the coercive deployment of labor for the five-year plan the utter cultural and political terror that the quotas for the rounding up of subversives and deportations to camp. So you don't even uh, need to prove guilt. Um, in, in fact, if you're a local security officer, you, you just need to, it's taken for granted that you're going to have 10,000 bodies coming out of your district this month, and you just need to tell us which ones. The um, chilling effect that it had on everybody uh, throughout the Soviet Union uh, especially those that were most engaged in education or culture or politics. You had a single line, a single world understanding that was obligatory to parrot under every, um, under every condition, deviation from it punishable by uh, torture, death, disappearance, defamation, and then the same thing happening to your friends, associates, and loved ones. And this system was so harsh that um, it really, un, you know, putting aside the incredible human misery it produces, it stymies the development of the Soviet Union as a society, as a polity, as a culture. Um, progress is impossible under conditions of terror like that. You're not going to get a better system. You're not even going to get necessarily technical innovation or scientific innovation, right? You're just going to get what comes down from the top. And the resentment and that it builds in the population was uh, taken for granted on the part of Stalin and the security services, which is why contamination with the outside world was so heavily punishable and so intensely controlled. Because we know how bad our people have it. And if they talk to anyone who is not part of this system, they'll immediately want to defect. They'll immediately know that everything we're saying is lies. So we need those controls to be as severe as possible. It's a North Korea, except the entire Soviet Union, to the yeah. point where Hitler could have won the war were it not for his own megalomaniacal um, obsession, which was with racial purity. If the Ukrainians, who had suffered under the double whammy of um, extractive, um, brutal economic um, exploitation in order to finance um, industrialization and terror against um, expressions of national identity, against their um, local culture, against any form of oppositionism that could be dreamed up. They were ready to defect en masse as an entire nation, 30 million people to the German side, were it not for the um, vile and uh, harsh racial um, brutality that they faced from Germans. A lot of them did, like the Banderovtse, right, um, were straight out collaborators, but he could have had everybody with just some level of humane treatment. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, that's, that's really, that's really well said. Uh, you know, I, I also, Oh, sorry, uh, Gene, you're muted. I know you were starting so to say I, something. Yeah, I just wanted to also say, you know, like a really good example of like the kind of uh, cultural and like uh, cultural malaise that and sort of authoritarian and, you know, all states have to be authoritarian to be a certain, to a certain degree. But the, the, the way that the Soviet system understands stymied innovation and things like that is something like Lysenkoism, where you had this pseudo scientific theory rejecting genetics. And because it was, uh, and you had not a scientific debate, but a bureaucratic struggle in which uh, Lysenko used his connections to liquidate his like scientific opponents. And this like is writ large in the Soviet system. You know, democratic centralism as you know, the Leninist principle is like two, was two kind of uh, sides to it. You have this rigorous like debate within, within the sort of revolutionary cadre of the party followed by a collective a collective acceptance of the decision that's reached, right? But you know, when you go to the Stalinist era, although you know, I, I think, and Stalinists will often uh, attempt to emphasize the continuity between Leninism and uh, 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 Stalinism, and I, I will sort of um, digress here to say the reason I use the term Stalinism is not as an insult, but as to distinguish the kind of political te uh, tendencies that emerged, uh, you know. The thing the thing that idiots always say uh, is, uh, and I'm making a very conscious decision to start the sentence this way, because I'm just not going to give this any sort of, I, 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 I'm not going to humor it at all, right, is, oh, there's no such thing as Stalinism, there's only Marxism-Leninism, uh, which uh, Marxism-Leninism is a euphemism. Uh, that was invented by the Stalinists, but it was, to, it was a euphemism that was invented by Stalinists to describe something that had very little to do with anything that Vladimir Lenin believed or said or thought. Uh, the, uh, the 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 discontinuities are are severe. I mean, you don't. You don't yeah, have to... and, and you know, right wing. It's actually often right wing historians such as Pipes who like try and emphasize the continuities. But you know, in foundations of of Leninism, you know, Stalin writes that you know you can't defeat. Uh, opportunist elements by ideological struggle within the party uh, and that if you you know and, and I'm paraphrasing if you you know if you do this uh, your party's not going to be able to function when the question comes down it's like well who's defining who these opportunities opportunist elements are you basically have a, a kind of de facto repudiation of of uh, democratic centralism and the transformation of the so Soviet party a party that had you know where there are like conditions where people have to join it. it's not it's not like a, a loose mass party you have to sign up to the principles of the party but within the party you see the annihilation of you know any kind of internal discussion and it's the transformation of that political party into a bureaucratic mechanism through which the the, the state and the party and the leader legitimate themselves so you have this stultifying effect uh, on society it's not an either or equation where where you know where you will have uh, Stalin say, well, you know, the Soviet Union was under attack, blah, blah, blah. Nobody is saying that, you know, there should have, you know, that in the conditions, the international conditions that the Soviet Union was operating is you would have like perfect, a perfect uh, section of personal liberty. But, uh, you know, you had the liquidation of people who were committed to the project. You had the uh, the policy being derived, you know, increasingly from in a top-down manner, rather than by collective 
uh, sort of decision making. And of course, you had a social reaction uh, during the Stalinist period. One of the first things the Bolsheviks did uh, was to, you know, eliminate laws against homosexuality. These things were brought back under Stalin. You know, when I go on Twitter, you have all these people who are like, I'm a gay, trans, uh, Stalin, uh, Marxist, Leninist, uh, you know, and it's like, bro, like in, in the early 30s that, you know, uh, homosexuality was not only made illegal, but was also uh, associated with fascism and the, uh, you know, the decadence of the, the former ruling classes of the state. So you have, in addition to kind of, uh, which is a tragedy because, of course, during the early phases of uh, Soviet rule, uh, you had an enormous amount of cultural innovation and uh, open discussion in a society that had been, uh, you know, stamped on by Tsarist autocracy for so long. And it's a tragedy that that experiment was extinguished. Perhaps that was an inevitability, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Bolsheviks legalized homosexuality. They legalized abortion. Uh, they uh, they legalized uh, easy, you know, uh, no fault divorce. Basically, uh, promoted women in the professions and careers. Right, uh, and uh, and almost every one of those those decisions uh, was reversed under Stalin. Uh, abortion was recriminalized. Homosexuality was recriminalized. Uh, openly gay people were sent to labor camps. Uh, yes, yeah, those I've were bourgeois that. deviations. Right. Yeah. And you had a return to a kind of puritanical um, traditionalism in the yeah, guise of to get divorced, communist wholesomeness. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, exactly. Uh, and, you know, sort of like traditional social reactionary ideology uh, about the family. I mean, the point about democratic centralism, I mean, even I mean, forget what existed under under Stalin. I mean, even the way that many Trotskyist parties now understand democratic centralism is ironically far mm -hmm. more centralized and less democratic than uh, the than what the Bolsheviks actually had at the point where they made a successful revolution. It's exactly the opposite of what people always say. Oh, look, you, know, you can have your, you know, squishy Menshevik ideas about democracy, but you can't win a revolution that way. Look, in 1917, the uh, the the you know the Bolsheviks had uh, had factions that would openly disagree with each other, that disagree with each other in the uh, in the public press. Uh, you know, oftentimes the uh, to to a ridiculous extent. Like, I mean, you know, Zinoviev kind of leaked the plan for uh, for the, the insurrection uh, by doing an editorial saying that it shouldn't happen, and he wasn't kicked out of the party. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that's that's certainly a dramatic reversal. Certainly, the policy towards the peasantry was a dramatic reversal. Certainly, the entire premise of the revolution was that. Uh, socialism only possible globally, but revolution in Russia would spark revolution in Germany and hence around the industrialized capitalist world. And that entire premise uh, is reversed uh, under, uh, under under Stalin. That the, uh, you know, I mean, the sort of foundational Marxist idea of what capitalism is for and what socialism is for uh, is that, to put it a little bit crudely, like capitalism does a marvelous job of uh, of industrializing and 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 creating. The possibility of plenty, uh, but uh, that's what the opening, which is the Communist Manifesto, were about. But uh, socialism uh, is about taking over that industrial uh, machine and um, and and having a more democratic and egalitarian way of of, of enjoying the fruits uh, of that of that plenty. And so, if you're going to say, "Oh, look, Stalin, uh, sure, may have crushed any vestige." 
of working class autonomy or even basic uh, rights at the workplace, uh, you know, even some that had existed before the Star Czars were overthrown, uh, but uh, but at least he, you know, created this big industrial machine. What you're doing is, you know, calling yourself socialist and contributing to this regime, the thing that Marxists always said capitalism was good for, but not the thing that they said that uh, that socialism was good for. And, 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 and yeah, could we go for it? And I think that uh, the Soviet Union itself didn't claim to be a communist society for um, uh, the early part of its its history because it hadn't industrialized yet. You know, communism is socialism plus electricity. We don't have the electricity yet, so we're just socialists now. Um, yeah, no, for, for and, sure. And also, I mean, I think I think the issue of Stalinism was in in a way, and Kuba's uh, talked about this in his Zero Books uh, uh, video, was was predicted by figures like uh, Plekhanov. Plekhanov, yeah. Because you know what was Plekhanov's big idea? Incan industrialization, which you know is not a bad analogy to you know put forward for what happened uh, under Stalinism, because you know the revolution was always envisaged as an international revolution or a revolution that would at least gain the socialist bloc enough of an industrial base in order to you know in order to modernize and, uh, and industrialize. It, you know, you'd be able to leapfrog. Leap was that the socialists taking power would get the blame for the brutality of you know primitive accumulation and things like that, which is kind of what happened as the socialist project became delegitimized from uh, within. Now people want to blame a lot. A lot of uh, uh, Stalinists want to blame that on the policies of the uh, the you know post-Stalin era. But what you have basically is is a kind of continuation of many of the Stalinist policies, but with a sort of more you know. A relative degree of uh, liberalization, right? But you know, yeah. ultimately, they the chilled out a little. They chilled. They chilled. It wasn't, you know, it was a. Yeah. And the, and it the wasn't a that it wasn't gulag archipelago to a certain extent. You know, the yeah. Soviet Union wasn't like this society where you know everyone was constantly living in terror. You know, I know plenty of people who lived in the Soviet Union who were like, it's a bit boring, and you had to do some black market stuff. But eh, you know, it was fine. Yeah. Yeah, so so it, it, this is this point about the post-Stalin Soviet Union is is really important because th there is this bizarre thing. And and by the way, I know I saw somebody in the chat say it's like okay, it's it's weird to be focused on on Stalin and either attacking or defending him, which you know, for the record, I agree a hundred percent. I think it's interested enough yeah, to do a YouTube like, stream on, but <laughs> you know, we've been over this, right? Like this this doesn't feel uh, like yeah, it's right. necessary. Yeah. Of course, right. So, so yes, I, like I said, interesting enough to do a YouTube stream on. Uh, I, I, I have, uh, I've, I've devoted them to much more esoteric topics in the past and will in the future. Uh, and and I think that this is a, um, and and I think that this sort of um, like edgy desire to put a plus wherever you think defenders of the established order are putting a minus. I think that's kind of a cancer on the left, uh, the online left at least, and, and does the, deserve to be. The drive to be based. Right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, but in um, but when people are uh, defending him in these in these spaces, they'll they'll do these. Well, okay, first of all, they'll do this thing where they say, "Oh, so you're saying that you know that Stalin was just as bad as Hitler?" No, no, let's argue with something somebody said, right? Nobody here said that. Uh, second, uh, they uh, they'll. Um, You'll know, say, "Oh, this is a this is an anti-communist 
thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you're 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 just repeating anti-communist uh, talking points, which I find bizarre on a couple levels. One of which is that uh, Stalin killed many more communists than all but like the most industrious right-wing dictatorships could could dream of uh, of doing. Among other things, uh, in the you know the Stalin's purges. Uh, killed off most of the original membership of the Bolshevik Party that actually made the revolution in uh, in 1917 uh, continued to to kill communists, you know, throughout the you know throughout the 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, and for another thing, uh, like since Khrushchev's uh, speech to the 20th Party Congress in 1956, the official line of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the and communist parties, or at least Moscow and communist parties around the world from 1956 to 1990, right, for the majority of the history of the Soviet Union was this guy is a monster. Uh, and, um, you know, you could even like, you know, have problems with that, say they're trying to make it too much about this one guy and not the flaws in the system. And I would agree with a lot of those critiques. But I find it like really funny that like, you know, 1956 to 1990, the official line of this, the Communist Party of, of the Soviet Union was extremely anti-Stalin, uh, but like somehow now, uh, you know, thinking, uh, you know, thinking that, that that Stalin was a monster is is portrayed as a as an anti-communist, uh, you know, as an anti-communist thing just seems bizarre to me. Uh, I and and then and then another thing is as I want to talk about this issue about the the great man theory of history, because I, I do feel the force of that critique to a certain extent, but also. Um, also, I think that I see a lot of inconsistency in people who make it, right? So I, I, I don't, I don't think if I said um, Henry Kissinger is a monster and a war criminal uh, who uh, who is uh, is you know responsible as much as anybody for for the genocidal levels of deaths in you know Vietnam and Cambodia, Indonesia, uh, Indonesia. Uh, for for Pinochet's reign of terror in Chile, et cetera, et cetera. If I said all that, 100 out of 100 people who start talking about the great man theory of history when you suggest that Stalin is a monster would not would not say, yeah, of course, right? Of course, Hedrick Kissinger is a monster, and I would suggest that you kind of can't have it both ways, and that there's there's nothing uh, particular. I mean, Karl Marx's theory of history is not about suspending all normative judgments. Marx himself sure as hell didn't. Uh, it's uh, it's about having a certain analysis of why things happen uh, that uh, that focuses on on material factors, but uh, but that is also compatible with saying that there is a there is a degree to which individual politicians, statesmen, historical actors do exercise agency. And and do make decisions, and and I'm where I would see a flaw in the sort of Khrushchevian, uh, Khrushchevist uh, line uh, line about Stalin uh, is sure it, it makes it too much about that one person, but not because um, not because that that one person didn't exercise any agency or that you know everything that happened is took completely inevitable, but because part of the problem with the system is that it concentrated so much power on the top that if you were unlucky enough to have somebody like Stalin in that position, uh, they could commit world historic crimes and, by the way, uh, discredit any sort of radical critique of capitalism to, for many, many people around the world for a very long time in a way that we're only now starting to come out of. 
Yeah, and I think I think the the the, the issue as well is like often uh, those people defending Stalin have a kind of double, you know, to to return to the great man a theory of history. It's any success of the Soviet Union is due to Stalin's uh, inspirational leadership, and any anything that might be criticized is a a product of like uh, circumstances, environment, and things like that. So you know, it's kind of wanting to have one's cake and eat it. People starve to death because it didn't rain, right? Uh, but you know, uh, every success of of the Red Army was down to Stalin's uh, superior uh, tactical acumen and leadership. So we have this kind of uh, that. That's why I would like to be critical, and I agree completely. You know, uh, uh, with the you know we this you know the Stalinist system was not just Stalin. Star you know had for example the leadership of the Communist Party you know, put a bullet in Stalin's head after the German invasion, as Stalin expected they might, because of the disaster of that invasion, uh, things might have been very different. But there was a, you know, and there was a political uh, elite around him, individuals like Beria, uh, who, you know, also enabled this. So obviously in the post-Stalin era, there was a desire to, you know, put all the bad stuff that happened on Stalin, when of course there were other people involved uh, involved in that uh, in, in that process as well. So of course, you know, s blaming Stalin for everything that happened in the Soviet Union, in certain ways, can be a little bit unfair as well because it sort of takes away the the agency. And I would make one more point. I find like the credulity it takes to believe that the entire leadership of the Bolshevik Revolution turned out to be like agents of Britain and France or like whoever or saboteurs is like astonishing you know like the the notion that everybody they were all agents Bukharin was on the take Zinoviev was on the take it's just nuts Trotsky was on the take they were all it's just it's just it beggars belief that you know like how would a revolution have happened if they were all on the take it just beggars the, belief um and I want to sort of change perspective a little and ask talk less about Stalin and more about the Stalin fanboys. Like the more curious question for me is less in a context when, um, you know, socialism is, is making um, a rise that people might gravitate towards the figure of Stalin as why, why is socialism at all a talking point in the United States, right? It should be better than a doornail. Um, the entire culture is inculcated with this anti-socialist um, education indoctrination and the it's also the great national enemy right the the last you know before al-qaeda was the soviet union and the soviet union was a lot better than the shitty islamic spin-off um they had the proper death star you know they had nuclear weapons satellites a space dog right these, these were Ivan Drago. It's the real deal. It's the American, the inverse of America and the American uh, imagination. And I think that we have this moment with so many, especially younger people, very online people gravitating towards the left in generally, and especially to the most based, most strident, most radical, um, most anti-American formulations of leftism because the United States is in a serious existential crisis. Um, its promises 
its practical promises have failed for so long that now the ideological verities that Americans should take for granted, defining who they are as a people, defining what their country is, its proper place in history, which is you know, on a pedestal, a city on a hill, or at least a protagonist, right? That you're, you, can, you can sympathize with, even if you don't necessarily agree with, what, uh, with everything they've done. That's gone by the wayside so bad that now um, it's the notion of the fundamental villainy of America is that's the null position for many young Americans. And that makes it tempting to look, you know, if, if daddy's a drunk, if daddy's a monster, if daddy's a serial killer, then let's find a new daddy who's the exact opposite, you know? Let's find a new um, figure to raise up and, um, and dwell in the shadow of their charisma. Yeah, I and mean, I would, I would, if that pisses I would, off daddy, right? Like the one we hate the one now, all the better. I mean, I would, I would say, and, and this is why I think uh, you know, on, the, you know, on the black left and you know, amongst, oh, hello, Jim? Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's why I'd say, uh, you know, especially on the black left or the Latin American uh, left in America, there is an affection for Stalin because it's a repudiation of the American, uh, the American tradition, right? It's a, it's a repudiation of, 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 of Americanism. Uh, and, you know, as Cuba says, it's like it, it's rejecting Americanism. So, you know, I do have some sympathy for that position when people, people who have been screwed over by the, by the United States they weren't all de they weren't deported to central asia their ancestors weren't deported to central asia their ancestors were brutalized by american uh, in american gulags which we euphemistically call plantations right so uh, you know so i i have some sympathy for that uh, thing and i would also add to uh, kuba's thing and this kind of ties in with the fdr thing i think especially since the uh, uh, sort of failure of the bernie project uh, there is like a, there's almost a kind of retreat into fantasizing about the past. And one aspect of this fantasize, fantasy, which, uh, you know, and again, this is not a personal attack, but I see, especially with a historian like Harvey Kay, is a fetishization of FDR and the new Yeah, so, so I, I, do, I do want to get to that. Um, and I would I, just want to get the edgy version of that. That's like the edgy, you know, edgy kind of fantasy about... Uh, uh, yeah. Fantasy. Yeah, so so I, I do uh, I do want to get to that, and uh, in a perverse sort of way, I'm I'm, I'm glad that you uh, uh, brought up our uh, friend and comrade Harvey because at least it's uh, at least that shows that we're doing equal time for uh, uh, for for, uh, for for talking shit about extended family here. Uh, but uh, but I I want uh, I, I did just want to say a couple things, right? Um, I mean, first, by the way, uh, you know, I, I, I want to push back a little bit on the black left and the you know Latin American left, you know, because just just because these these are such enormous uh, categories, right? And and the most uh, historically hegemonic parts of all of them, you know, were not uh, particularly pro-Stalin, uh, and um, you know that that certainly you're, you're not going to find uh, kind words for Stalin from. Um, you know, democratic socialists like Barry Rustin or, you know, Martin Luther King. Uh, weirdly enough, you're not even going to find kind roots words for Stalin among 
uh, like the uh, Black Panthers, uh, who, who who did kind of romanticize Mao's China, uh, but uh, there there was a sort of weird thing in in parts of the left in the sixties and seventies uh, where where people, uh, lots of people, like Sartre, right? You know, lots of people, uh, you know, were were able to hold both of those thoughts in their heads. Uh, you know, disliking Stalin, but uh, you know, but thinking that Mao was great, and I think I think not, you know, uh, seeing fundamental continuities there, uh, but. Um, you know, and and certainly, you know, whatever. I mean, these these are, but like, I mean, yeah. Go go read Huey Newton's old uh, old 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 essays. Like, there are actually a bunch of positive references to Trotsky, which is weird and unexpected. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no. I mean, but I, but I, I I do still take your point that there have been there have been places and times that you know that you've had uh, you know that you've had people in all of these groups uh, who have you know, who, who have had an instinctively, you know, positive view towards Stalin uh, because uh, cause Stalin's Russia was very far away and you could lie to yourself about it and you could, uh, and, and it was associated with some sort of alternative to the society around you whose horrors you were all too familiar with. Uh, you know, same reason so that some Soviet dissidents could, could lie to themselves about the American empire. Um, or, you know, uh, members of, of the nationalities that were oppressed by Stalin, which, by the way, brings me to something we didn't say, which is that in the original quote, there's this uh, claim about uh, Stalin uh, being a great contributor to Marxist theory, which is just utter nonsense uh, in the like most extreme possible way. I mean, like, forget that you knew who this guy was or what he did historically, just reading his writings uh, nothing he did is any sort of contribution to Marxist theory. The the writing of Stalin that's, that gets the most love uh, from a Marxist theory perspective is his pamphlet on the national question, which is an awful dogmatic, confused mess uh, that lays out this checklist of uh, of I mean, very ironic. Also, of course, given that Stalin deported entire nationalities and and uh, had uh, and and you know. Oftentimes, you know, with with all the violence that usually goes with ethnic cleansing, uh, but um, but also like like Stalin's checklist of like the requirements for being a nation and thus having the right of nations to self determination in his National Question pamphlet is just a historical garbage that like almost no nation that's ever existed actually meets all of these requirements. Yeah, well, and 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 you know that pamphlet was written at a time where you know theorization of what exactly a nation was was still in its infancy because you know you had these two two notions of nationhood one as kind of a subjective entity and one as an objective entity and obviously the stalinist formulation attempted to uh you know harmonize those two conceptions of nationhood by providing both objective and subjective characteristics for a nation but of course when it came to being a, a tool for uh, you know, creating policy, it proved to be disastrous because, you know, the, the Soviets discovered that in the, who got to be a nation at certain periods, uh, you know, uh, uh, you had like, uh, uh, you know, you, you, it turned out that they had to build the nations, right? You know, a lot of nation building that took, uh, you know, a lot of these nations weren't self-evident. And, you know, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and you had, uh, uh, you know, these were constructed, and there were there's a there's a historian, um, Hakan Yilmaz, who's done an excellent comparative study of Soviet nation building in the Ukraine, uh, Azerbaijan, and Kazakhstan, and you know, like showing how like 
these policies of like who was a nation suddenly became very confusing because you know sometimes groups would be regarded as part of a nation sometimes they would not uh, they'll be uh, and you ended up with all kinds of levels of autonomy which in the post-soviet levels of repression and levels of repression and mass deportations you know this is the other thing you know we didn't really touch on it but i mean kuba touched on it a bit you had like in the soviet period the collective punishment of certain nationality groups because you know certain you know poles uh, Kurds were all deported uh, from the borders of the Soviet Union, Chechens, Koreans, uh, all kinds of groups were deported across the Soviet Union. Uh, the Crimean Tatars. The Crimean Tatars. So, you know, like people go, oh, but they collaborated with the Nazis. These deportations were happening in the 1930s, and these were collective punishments. It wasn't just like a couple of troublemakers. It was masses of the population were liquidated and dispersed throughout uh, the empire in a in a huge project of uh, ethnic engineering, which right. incidentally also an extension of czarist policy. Yeah, I mean, like one of the big ironies of Stalinist policy was in a place like Lvov, uh, they ended up uh, uh, liquidating the Polish majority of the city and transforming a previously Polish Jewish city into a Ukrainian city. Uh, a Ukrainian fascist city. A Ukrainian fascist city. Yeah, exactly. You know, these these. The, the, uh, if you look at the recent war between Azerbaijan and Armenia, the roots are in Stalinist policy towards uh, Karabakh, and the division of it between you know Nukono Karabakh and Nukono Karabakh is assignment to the Azerbaijani SSR, uh, as opposed to its unification with the Armenian SSR, which uh, you know which Nakhchivan which had been, which was an exclave of Azerbaijan, had been given to uh, Azerbaijan, but an exclave of Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh, remained in Azeri hands, and that has been, you know, a, a source of discontent between those countries, and can be traced back to Stalinist nationality engineering in the Transcaucasian Federation during the 1920s and 30s. And the irony is, the territory that separated Nagorno-Karabakh, the lowlands of the Karabakh, uh, uh, from Armenia, the entire population. Uh, there had been of Kurdish origin and were all deported. So you have this complete mass of ethnic engineering taking place that has caused all kinds of shenanigans. Uh, 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 Nothing to say of like the actual engineering, things like the White Sea, can, uh, White sea Canal. Which that, was a disaster. That couldn't have ships. That could, exactly. The, um, and later on, um, uh, just the the planning the environmental planning of um it, it's kind of like the soviet union is the nightmare of modernism where you have all of the brutality of um rat attempting to send use central government power to rationalize um economics ethnicity nationality um you know uh, social questions without any of the benefits like um the at a certain point they got a lot of people housing after the war and that's good and the literacy is good don't get me wrong but um a lot of these larger systems were um uh, were were pretty disastrous yeah and, and and i think um i mean I, I guess just kind of wrap it up stalin before we do fdr uh much more briefly uh i i think that um you know, I think that what we was saying about the, the sources of uh, of of the sort of defense sort of uh, of Stalin 
on parts of the online and, and social media and, and, you know, podcasting kind of left uh, is, uh, is exactly right. And, and I think one reason why, you know, it's, it's not just sort of like, you know, interesting, right. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, um, you know, if I suddenly started running into a bunch of people who are defending Jeffrey Dahmer, I might just dream about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that I think it's, it's not just, uh, you know, interested enough to uh, talk about on YouTube, but, uh, but I, I think it's maybe something that's worth tracking and, and kind of understanding, pushing back against a little bit is, uh, is that it's this, it's this way of thinking about politics that's enormously unhelpful. And I think even a lot of people who fall prey to it with regard to this question can see that it's really unhelpful in other contexts. So uh, if you, if you're talking to a liberal who responds to everything that you say about Biden by saying something about Trump and the Republicans, uh, if you're like me, or if you're like most of the people who are defending Stalin, uh, you, you, you very quickly see the problem with that, right? Like, like, like why that didn't really address uh, what you're saying, you know, that, uh, that, uh, that, you know, that the multiple, uh, the multiple things can, can all be problems. Uh, whereas uh, in, in context like this, uh, it's, uh, you know, there's this sort of immediate response. Well, what about what happened in this country? What about how, what happened in, in that country? Uh, and, you know, uh, American imperialism is, is worse and, you know, things like that, some of which I agree with. Uh, but, uh, but we don't have to pick, right? Not only do we not have to pick as a matter of practical politics, I mean, uh, maybe there are times and places when you did, but you certainly don't. There's no choice in which one of the options is Stalinism in, in which you have to pick. Uh, in the context of uh, the United States or any other country in the world in 2021. Uh, so not only is that not a, a practical choice that's forced on us, uh, the exact opposite is, uh, is true, that nothing could be a greater gift to truly reactionary anti-communists, where anti-communist doesn't just mean somebody who's critical of the Soviet system, but means somebody who defends from a reaction like like uh is opposed to any sort of radical critique of capitalism or alternatives to capitalism there could be no greater gift to reactionary anti-communists uh and uh than defending stalin you know because because what you're doing is exactly what they want to do which is to conflate any sort of radical critique of capitalism or offered alternatives to capitalism with the worst horrors perpetrated in the name of some sort of socialism in the 20th century. I mean, that's why would you give in, these people a gift. And it plays into their own heroic um, martyr complex where they're not standing up to a bunch of adjunct professors and, you know, like um, adolescent readers of um, the Communist Manifesto, but they're standing up to like full on you know, Felix Dzerzhinsky um, pulling fingernails out in a basement somewhere that, you know, that, that we're going to machine gun the priests next, right? That that specter is alive in the minds of especially many older people when they hear the word socialist, let alone communist. And when um, they imagine that, you know, when you have that, clip of one nice thing about stalin right like that's gonna appear on fox that's definitely going up there 
No, uh, exactly. Which, which, which I mean, if you like to, in this case, you, and you should learn something from that. If, uh, you to, if you want to see what the American sort of normie perception of Stalin's, uh, Stalin's Russia and the Soviet Union is, watch the TV show Sliders, which is where they go to alternative universes. And like episode two is, you know, Soviet America and people just get executed on the streets all the time. So we have to be careful, like on a strategic level about, you know, you know what we're talking about and we should be honest we're not under like we don't you know we we should be as honest as possible about like the failures because how can you how can you work towards a a better project and a more lasting and successful project because of course the soviet union no longer exists uh how can you do that without understanding assessing the 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 the, the problems with that political experiment as noble as its beginnings may have been no, well, yes. I mean, certainly, uh, you should learn everything if if you if you still hold out hope for some sort of workable socialism. Somebody asked in the chat, you know, why uh, China didn't upset the Soviet Union. But, I mean, I would, you know, I mean, if you guys have a different take on this, but I mean, I would just say very simply that they uh, economically liberalized, uh, you know, uh, much much more and much sooner, uh, and uh, while while you know, keeping the political system intact and that the effect of that economic liberalism, uh, you know, was often very bad in lots of ways for some people in China, good for other people in China in other ways, you know, that it, it did uh, create a middle class, but, you know, so has led to severe economic inequality and all sorts of bad things. Uh, but, um, but it, it did mean that they didn't have the kind of day-to-day -day economic dysfunction that plagued the, uh, the Soviet model and that, you know, Played such a big role in its in its uh, its demise. Uh, I mean, I, I don't say that's the only reason, but I think it's it's a big reason. And so I think if you're if you're going to, you know, if you want to actually win now, if you want to defeat capital and create something else, now, I think it's absolutely crucial that you learn everything there is to be learned from previous attempts at some sort of alternative to capitalism. And learning everything that is to be learned means learning the negative lessons as well as the positive ones. Right? Here's here's what didn't work. Uh, and, um, but I'd also say as far as the, I remember actually saying that sliders episode you mentioned, Jane, you know, as, as far as that goes, I mean, that's a perfect example. Cause you think about it, look, by the time that episode was made and for decades before then, that was a bizarre propagandistic distortion of what the Soviet union was like. I mean, nobody in the Soviet union in the 70s and 80s, I mean, there were people who were executed for various things, but like nobody in the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s was just being like, you know, taken out back and shot, you know, in like an impromptu execution or, you know, anything remotely like that, right? There, there were various ways in which dissidents were, you know, persecuted, harassed, but I mean, nothing, nothing on that level at all. Uh, you know, so of course, even to demonize the Soviet Union, what they had to do was in 1980, whatever sliders was made, you know, uh, they had to equate the Soviet Union that actually existed then with the Soviet Union in its darkest period under Stalin. And of course, the other half of that is equating any kind of, you know, attempted a radical alternative to capitalism with the, uh, the, the dysfunctionality of the Soviet Union. 
And, and my God, I mean, there's no quicker way of just feeding into all parts of that propaganda exercise than actually defending the most indefensible part of uh, Soviet history. But uh, Tusker, thank you for the super chats, has been say one positive thing about Stalin before he moved to FDR. So the clip for alternative, I'll, I'll say two things about him. They're positive. Um, one, um, the, uh, the bank robbing was kind of cool. Uh, the uh, you know he he was uh, after the 1905 revolution he he robbed banks to raise money for the Bolshevik party and you know and there's a sort of um, you know he's a good looking young guy there's a kind of uh, oh total hot total hot yeah yeah so there's a kind of like smoke uh, show yeah and, you know and so he's sort of there's a sort of Che Guevara appeal to that period of uh, of, of Stalin's life that's one positive thing. And then uh, the other positive thing, of course, is that uh, even though he did not at all uh, lead the revolution and he killed most of the people who did lead the revolution, at least uh, at least the various horrors that he, he perpetrated uh, were in the name of uh, creating some kind of alternative uh, society, uh, which brings us to uh, the contrast uh, with, uh, with FDR. Uh, I like... Um, Somebody asked in the chat why Stalin's popular in Russia. Uh, same reason that you know Ivan the Terrible is popular in Russia uh, as a uh, you know romanticized past leader associated with periods of national greatness. But um, but I'd 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 say um, that um, on FDR, yes, I like Harvey K a lot. He actually uh, on Monday uh, couldn't do the show uh, for for reasons I'll mentioned at the end of the stream, but, uh, but, uh, and, and Harvey stepped up and, and helped out with that big fan of Harvey. We'll definitely have him back on the show. His, uh, Bernie Marxist historians book, uh, comes back out, but yeah, this is something I do disagree with Harvey a little bit about. Uh, I also, um, disagreed with Michael a little bit about this, uh, that, um, the, the whole question of, of, uh, how we should relate to, to that bit of history, that sort of, deeply ambiguous stab at American social democracy in, uh, in the 1930s. Um, because even though um, I understand, I mean, look, you can probably find lots of places where I've kind of uh, contextually defended some of that stuff. Uh, and because I think there's a sense in which arguments about FDR and the New Deal are often proxies for other kinds of arguments. They're, they're proxies for arguments about whether, um, you know, universalist class-based appeals are, uh, are, are better than, uh, than, than uh, kind of radically by identity politics uh, and, and better for, for, you know, for ending racial disparities, for example. Um, they're proxies for, for arguments about whether uh, government intervention uh, can, can help people in certain ways that it clearly can. And so there are lots of sort of um, attacks on the New Deal from the right that are worth defending it against. But it's also, I think, a mistake to um, identify too much with FDR and the New Deal for a few reasons. Um, and I, I want to make it really clear that in saying this, the point is not just that FDR was like most historically important politicians, uh, a mixed bag who did bad things and et cetera, all of which is true, but all of which is true of people that I, I think get a, um, 
I would have much less problem identifying with, right? Like uh, Abraham Lincoln, right? You know, it's, uh, did, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, ended habeas corpus, you know, uh, during, you know, during the, the Civil War. There are constant instances of him killing Americans, et cetera. But overall, I'd say, is Lincoln on the right side of history? Absolutely, of course, right? Uh, or or uh, Trotsky, for that matter, you know, in the uh, phases of the Russian Revolution, we held, held, held state power, you know, there, there, uh, there, there are instances of him doing terrible things, whatever, you know, but uh, but I, I think is a, is a very positive figure overall. Uh, but in FDR's case, the point isn't even just, although it would be a hell of a just, that he, um, you know, interned Japanese Americans. That uh, that that he uh, that uh, that he, he turned away Jewish refugees. That uh, that he uh, made some very ugly deals with Southern Dixiecrats, uh, etc. All those all of those things are certainly relevant. Uh, it, it's also that I, I think that the sort of more um, fundamental issue with, uh, with 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 FDR and and the New Deal is that very explicitly, and this is where it ties into, you know, the second nice thing I was willing to say about Stalin, very explicitly on FDR's part, this is not like stage one of some 20-stage plan to do away with capitalism. It's exactly the opposite of that. Uh, it's an attempt to stabilize the system that very much had one eye, not just on various... Uh, terrible things that could have happened as a result of destabilization, you know, fascism, et cetera, but also very much had one eye on the growth of working class radicalism and, and the threat that that could pose uh, to, uh, to capitalism and, and, and trying to, to manage that threat. I mean, um, I, would also, I would also add that the social democracy uh, brought by FDR was a relatively tepid form of social democracy, even when compared with the form of social democracy brought about in other by Otto von Bismarck. I mean, I would say, you know, like, I, I have a lot more sympathy, for example, of a kind of fetishization of the Attlee administration in, in Great Britain after the uh, Second World War because of the enormous sweeping changes that it brought, especially the National Health Service. Of course, the Attlee administration can be criticized for imperialism. You know, it was the it was the Labour administration that you know um, began the trouble. For example, trying move, were moving to overthrow Mossadegh in Iran. So it's not like these guys were like all super nice and friendly. Uh, people, but they did significant social democratic gains at home in Britain. Individuals like an Iron Bevan founded you know founded the NHS. American social democracy, it's, it was important to people's lives, but I don't think it was, you know, it, it, when compared with social democracy, even in other parts of the advanced capitalist world, it's a relatively tepid and unstable uh, form that has has never reached the heights of European social democracy on one hand and have been far easily, more easily reversed than uh, social democracy in, in, in Europe. I think you're absolutely. I think you're correct. Uh, I think both of you were correct in um, in your assessments. I, but I want to stick up for FDR by pointing out that the in a lot of ways the United States is a ungovernable country. The regional disparities, the racial disparities, the um, uh, faction 
there's a gloss of we're all American uh, cheerleader patriotism that you can paint broadly with, but it, there are a lot of irreconcilable interests, a lot of veto points within the system. It is a difficult, difficult engine to maintain and a very, very challenging club to, to, to get any kind of um, minimal consensus, right? And, you know, right now the uh, Democrats are weaponizing that in order to avoid doing anything. But these are real features of the American political system. And to get the amount of change that he managed, one reason why people uh, gravitate towards FDR is because he's such an outlier. No other president has even um, attempted to um, try something as radical, maybe LBJ, but certainly none has succeeded. Uh, and like, like a lot of, I mean, I think even a lot of times when we're talking about people talk about the great society, the new deal, uh, they're what they really mean is the new deal and the great society. Cause that that's when like, you know, you could argue that that's when a lot of, uh, what started under FDR came to fruition, you know, but I mean, in, in, so in some ways, the New Deal was a bigger rupture because it was sort of establishing the state could play this kind of role in the first place. But also, like a lot of the much more dramatic reforms, you know, like 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 Medicare, you know, most obviously, you know, I mean, happened under LBJ. Fair enough. Even so, putting America on a trajectory, and there were, uh, you know, in, in France they called them the Trente Glorieuses, the post-war, um, the post-war era. But uh, the United States went from a New Deal to Great Society, and then you know fell off a cliff. Um, and that trajectory was established by FDR, who won. Uh, was it three elections? Um, he the Constitution to stop them. Exactly, and he created a durable kind of pro-worker constituency and institutionalized some elements of it when. The tendency of the country um, and the balance of forces was not favorable to him. Yeah, that's and that's right. He he did, he did actually run. A, he did win a fourth time, right? He was. Is that right? Was 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 he? Uh, did he, he died? Uh, uh, what? 32, 32, 36, 40, 44. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he, yeah. four times. He died. He died shortly after starting his fourth term. But yeah, I'm sorry. You were saying good. So um. Under the conditions of the United States, the the achievements of um, FDR are more remark are you know it's hard to compare them with someone like Attlee in the UK because the American political environment is much less hospitable to the types of uh, changes that FDR pushed, and there was um, less of a kind of labor. Um, well, the American American political history is, is difficult to to sum up because there's so much diversity in it. But um, the UK benefited from having a Labour Party with a very long and very clear um, constituency and orientation, while the Democratic Party, uh, basically FDR, had to reformulate it. The, uh, that said. Yeah, we should have we shouldn't have um, you know Big Daddy nostalgia for him either, because 
Biden is not the second coming of FDR, and the second coming of FDR is not going to solve all of America's problems. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. I mean, I think I think actually one of the points that you're making, you know, to make the case for the legitimate point that um, that you know what FDR's accomplishments are are impressive just from a perspective of of how hard it is to to guide, you know, the the machine and in a direction that's a big rupture from what happened before. Uh, but in the course of making that point, I mean, you know, I think the, th the thing about the difference between the Labor Party and the Democratic Party is, is, is crucial uh, because I think one of the dangers of not just doing the sort of correct thing and, uh, and saying that, uh, uh, that of course, um, the, of course, um, you know, all of the usual sort of right-wing centrist liberal critiques of the New Deal are nonsense, uh, that, you know, that the, the sort of idea that, um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, it, it didn't really help that much with the Depression or the idea that it, it had um, uh, that, and, you know, especially like when people say that and then they say, oh, World War II did. It was like, well, okay, why, right? You know, that that's, you know, that that's, that's the same thing on steroids. Uh, but, um, and certainly like the kind of uh, identitarian liberal critique of the New Deal is total nonsense that, uh, you know, basically only helped out white people, which, which, which if, if you believe that. Uh, well, you know, they, don't, they don't count. And which is not entirely true either. It depend. I mean, it didn't help. No, a lot no, of it, 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 it definitely did not only help white people. And look at the 1936 election. That was the, the single biggest swing in uh, in black voting patterns in American history. Uh, that the uh, from uh, you know the mass abandonment of the uh, of the part of Lincoln, uh, because even though there were some, there were you know there were respects in which the New Deal was not universalist enough uh, because of the exemptions for uh, for. Um, you know, farm workers and domestic uh, servants. Uh, although I do think there are European countries where similar socialist surge programs had the same kinds of exemptions without the racial dimension, just because of the, you know, you have like politically powerful reactionary landowners in lots of societies. But, um, you know, despite those respects in which those programs weren't universalist enough, uh, it still helped massive amounts, you know, numbers of, of black people, especially in the North, uh, you know, and, and uh, Hispanic people, and you know, and, and et cetera. I mean, like, again, I, I think that was pretty clear at the time. I mean, that you can say the New Deal didn't help black people as much as white people because of these exemptions was 100% true. But that, you know, and, and because of very, the fact that it all played out against the background of what the America was at the time, which is an apartheid country, you know, so obviously that was reflected in the way lots of things were administered. Uh, but there's a big gap between it. It helped out, you know, um, Proportional, you know, it, it helps non-white people less, and it only helps white people, right? So I think that's the argument that's worth having. But one of the dangers of excessive uh, romanticization of FDR, excessive identification with the New Deal, is precisely that it obscures that last thing that Kuba was talking about. Uh, that the difference between, for all the limits of social democracy, the difference between social democracy is something that actually comes out of a workers movement uh and 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 has you know and has that kind of telos to it and a and something that's kind of ambiguously like a very mild social democracy 
but is tied to a you know a mainline capitalist uh, party. Uh, and, and, and I think that's important, not necessarily because, I mean, whatever you think about the sort of tactical and strategic questions of how the left should approach the Democratic Party, I think it's important because it leads to exactly what, what Kubo's talking about there at the end. You know, people, you know, that like, because this is the sort of model of how these kinds of social democratic programs exist that's in the mind of a lot of progressives is going to be like FDR, uh, which, uh, which, which in turn leads to like a lot of the nonsense about Obama in 2008 and Biden now that, you know, that like you say, oh, well, sure, you know, they look like centrists now, but so did FDR when he came in, you know, they could be the next FDR, this guy could be the next FDR. And we spend most of our time, you know, oftentimes pushing back against that stuff, saying, no, 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 here's the differences between what FDR did and what you know Biden is doing, for example. And that's, you know, that's, that's certainly what Harvey spends a lot of time doing and fair enough as far as it goes. But I think we should also say, yeah, this is something that didn't come out of a workers' movement, and that that's a distinction that uh, that matters. I mean, that's a reason why you just can't like count on this this happening, and and identifying too much with that model for how change happens. That we're going to get like some big important you know mainstream Democrat in a position of power is going to just become more social democratic. I mean, that's a terrible model for, for how any kind of social change is gonna happen in the United States. And I think certainly excessive identification with that history of FDR and the New Deal feeds into that. Well, I think that um, it's very also, interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. It's go very on. interesting to, to think of FDR as a, a kind of the savior of capitalism and that the New Deal came out of this um, orientation to preserve the economic system, just put sturdier foundations on it. Um, so it doesn't, A, it doesn't destroy itself, B, the workers don't topple it, uh, give them a, an investment. And the, um, and then you mentioned that, you know, the contrast that with Attlee where a workers movement creates social democracy. What's interesting to me is also the cases where social democracy gets created by uh, nationalist conservatives. Um, Otto von Bismarck in Germany and um, in Japan, and which becomes the basis of the East Asian model, um, social democracy in, in the concept of uh, public goods um, like healthcare, education distributed on a universalist basis um, comes out of wartime mobilization when um, with thanks to rational war fighting and soldier management techniques, you weigh soldiers, you measure their height, you test them to see if they can read, if they can do math. And in the case of both Prussia and um, Imperial Japan, they discover that the peasantry in the countryside are malnourished, are stunted, are deformed, and illiterate. And you can't win a war if these are your soldiers. So um, even though there is a tax burden that's placed on capitalists and landholders, um, the raison d'etat um, of the military leadership trumps that and you end up with a kind of isomorphism, right? A mirror image of social democracy that's achieved through workers' means. The countries that are most resistant to um, social dem uh, democracy are actually the Anglo-Saxon ones. I think that has to do with the fact that there, the uh, dominant class was neither um, 
did, was you know rigidly opaque to workers' movements, but also um, did not come out of a nationalist bureaucratic or nationalist military um, lineage, but instead it was strictly bourgeois. Well, I, I have to slightly disagree because when you say Anglo-Saxon world, what you really mean is America. Because even in Britain, the first inklings of reform in the beginning of the 20th century were a direct response to the Boer War and the fact that English conscripts uh, uh, were physically inferior to those derived from uh, places like Australia and uh, uh, South Africa uh, and places like that. So even in Great Britain, empire to a certain degree and the, the necessities of, of, of maintaining empire were promoted some of the first reformers in the, in the early 20th century in the liberal, in, in the liberal, uh, in the liberal era. But, you know, I, I accept... Yeah, you're right. It's the United States, but I'm a Canadian and I didn't want to sound like a dick. Yeah, well, fair, you know, because even in... Even in in, in Australia, they have, like, in Australia, their, like, right-wing party is, like, called the Liberal Party, and their left-wing party is, is the Labour Party, whereas in, uh, in Canada, you're all a bit more right-wing because of America, so you have the Liberal Party as your left-wing party, and the Conservatives as your, uh, you have the NPD, uh, what are, And uh, the New Democrats. The New Democrats. Yeah, we don't like talking about Labour, we don't like talking about socialism, um, we just like... Our conservatives used to be called the progressive conservatives. Um, it's all messed up, but yeah, I think. Uh, but I think also, you know, one other thing we have to sort of put down to F uh, talk about with the FDR administration is, of course, America was also at this period still administering an empire. You know, it was still administering the Philippines with a kind of iron fist, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, even places like Alaska, and uh, you know. Uh, Hawaii, I believe, weren't yet states as well. So you had like quite a uh, vicious colonial administration. You had all kinds of uh, brutalities and impunity taken. But you know, one of the difficult things, of course, about, about comparing, you know, American political leadership and like say the leadership of the Soviet Union is that in America, you have like a far, you have a class inverted commas dictatorship, right? You have, it's, it's, we, you know, individuals have far less agency within the kind of broader structures of kind of a, a class domination in society, right? So, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's a bit difficult to make those comparisons because, you know, individual leaders just don't have as much executive power. Yeah, I, I should also uh, say, you know, on the subject of the American empire, uh, that, you know, that, that one of the... Uh, uh, legacies that FDR left us was the uh, long-term alliance between the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, Good one. Yeah, solid. That yeah. didn't go wrong. So That's what Jason uh, Miles named his band after, Bitter Lake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. That's, That's awesome. what it's not. Yeah, the, 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 the Bitter Lake, the, the, where in the Suez the documentary, the Adam Curtis documentary the Adam that begins with the Saudi-U.S. Um, alliance. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess maybe to, uh, to, to wrap it up, I, I just say that it, it seems to, it seems to me that, um, you know, that what we need, uh, certainly in the, in the short term is a perspective about how to bring about, you know, reforms, never mind anything more radical, uh, that, that emphasizes the, uh, the, the independent, you know, the efforts of, uh, of, of working people that, you know, that not sort of hoping 
that you know uh that dominant you know that like big dominant you know powerful uh centrist corporate democrats will suddenly see the light uh you know but um uh you know because of the quality of their character just rising i think we just need a good king (laughs) yeah yeah there's the uh Although, but then, like you've got the Russian peasant problem. What if the the uh, the, the czar doesn't know what the evil boyars are doing in his name? Uh, so, so yeah, that's a, it's a problem. But, um, but yeah, that you know that they understand that you know that the that uh, that like even meaningful American social democracy would have to come out of whether it expresses even if it expresses itself in the Democratic Party, you know, certainly at crucial junctures uh, of a um, of a workers' movement, you know, and 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 not just sort of you know, hoping for deliverance from above. And I think that excessive identification with FDR undermines that. And then, uh, and then ultimately, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a big old commie. I'd like to, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like us to put forward a vision of uh, socialism, not just doses of socialism minister within capitalism, but socialism uh, after capitalism uh, that, uh, that that could actually be broadly appealing uh, to people who live in societies where they've already got democratic rights. Uh, and I think telling people, oh, you have to get those up, it's okay, it'll be worth it, is going to be a non-starter. Telling people that you, we could have a broader and deeper kind of democracy uh, after capitalism uh, could be successful. Uh, that, that could be a winning pitch. Uh, but uh, defending or muddying or being ambiguous about or, you know, not, you know, anything like that about uh, rep- the, the most extreme representative of the, of the opposite vision of socialism just seems super unhelpful uh, to that project. And it also detracts from the real leader of socialism, which is Amber Hodja, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, like I don't a- know. I'm, I'm a, a Kim Il Sungist, right? Now I'm more of an Amber Hodger guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So just, all right. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having us, Ben. Uh, yeah. No. No, my pleasure. This was this was really fun. I uh, thank you guys both uh, for coming on. Uh, should just say. Uh, be uh, before we go a couple things. Uh, one of them is uh, that uh, on uh, Friday on Modern Day Debate, I'm going to be arguing with a gentleman who calls himself T Jump about uh, capitalism and socialism. Uh, we uh, will try to stream that here. Also, if not, we'll replay it later. Still trying to figure out the details. Uh, speaking of debates for the Sunday night debate breakdown, uh, we uh, have. Um, going to be joined by uh, David Slavic, uh, good TMBS alum, and uh, and also by uh, current affairs house economist Rob Larson to view and uh, comment on uh, Sam Cedar's uh, debate today with uh, Jeroen Brook. Um, so uh, that should be fun. On Monday, we've got Richard Wolf uh, to talk about the democratic alternative to capitalism, as well as Pascal Robert to talk about Haiti. Uh, so uh, should be a good episode. Um, I, and, um, you know, of course I had to, uh, to miss, uh, the regularly, regular episode on Friday. I had to miss the last couple of regular things I would have done, uh, for a uh, combination of good reasons and very bad ones. Uh, the good reason is that, it, you know, the end of last week is my wife and I's, uh, seventh anniversary and the, uh, the bad reason 
is that uh, immediately after that, I found out um, that a cousin uh, who I grew up with uh, died in a um, very tragic uh, and and shocking way. I'm going to respect everybody's privacy and leave it at that. Uh, but in his in his early 30s, uh, he's about three years older, younger than um, you know Michael was when he died almost exactly a year ago. So uh, I have not been in the best place, and that's why I have not done the last couple of streams that I would uh, I would normally have done. But uh, you know, we uh, we are back. The uh, GTA uh, must go on. Uh, thank you guys again uh, for. Can I, can I put something? Yes. Uh, yeah. So uh, on the, this is revolution. We're going to have someone talking about Ethiopia on uh, on Thursday and next Thursday. We're going to be having Ben and uh, C. Dagvan to talk about the PMC. The so you know, I just wanted to give that shout out to to what's going on in this is revolution. Absolutely. Oh, and I should say that um, next week is going to be this is revolution heavy because uh, Pascal's going to be on talk about Haiti on Monday and on uh, Wednesday. Uh, this is the first uh, Wednesday movie stream we'll have we'll be doing in a while. We uh, we haven't been really doing those the uh, the last few weeks, uh, but uh, we are going to do one on uh, Wednesday. We're going to talk about the thing, the real one from 1982, uh, and uh, going to have um, uh, Toure Reed and uh, and also uh, Jason Miles on to uh, talk about that. So. Uh, a lot sure. of crossover these days. A lot of crossover between yeah. Burgess World and uh, This Is Revolution World. I'm glad Disney finally bought all the copyrights so we could have them in one place. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it is It is really good. It was very confusing for fans when the, you know, the TMBS Extended Cinematic Universe was, you know, uh, was owned by different companies. But, yeah, now that Disney owns everything, we're good. So. We're all good, yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Left is best.